And hello there, Peter Mansbridge here, and you are just moments away from the latest episode of The Bridge. It's Bruce Anderson time. That means it's Wednesday. Smoke, mirrors, and the truth. Bruce Anderson, before we go anywhere, there is a demand, an overwhelming demand on the part of uh, listeners to the bridge. They want to know what's happened to those radishes. Have we got radishes yet? Can we see radishes yet? I've eaten the radishes that we made. And then every night after that, Peter, I stand in that dry, dry, dusty field and I shake my fist at the sky and I ask for (laughs) rain and it hasn't come. And so we're just about to plant a second crop of radishes, which I'm sure are going to be better because they won't have to have dealt with the frost that we had at the beginning of the season. And here's the big news. I'm going to go this morning and pick up, I don't know why it's called this. It's called a trash pump. It's terrible branding. Like the the pump should change its name, but it's called a trash pump. And I'm going to put a hose in the creek and the trash pump is going to spread water all over our patch. And the next month is just going to be amazing. Just amazing. And there's going to be lots of pictures and great stories, but the last month has been about shaking my fist at the sky. Okay. So what you're telling me is that the first crop was a failure. No, the first crop was a small crop and it was tested by frost. Arugula came through fantastically. Lettuce has been plentiful, uh, but we're struggling with beans and beets and carrots. And we're going to see if this trash pump and a little bit of uh, of sunny, warmer weather is going to help. So I think it will. I didn't realize this. This really is a multi-product farm that you have. Oh, yeah. I, oh, I, yeah. I remember you telling us about arugula as oh, well yeah. as the uh, the small radishes i don't think we're going to feed the world or anything but i do think that we're going to feed a few people who live near us anyway that's that's kind of fun to think about but you know july's got to be better than may was and in the world of the pandemic i'm sure july is going to be better than may was and so i'm feeling optimistic there was a little bit of rain this week too what does a trash pump cost this trash pump this is a honda I think it's a four-stroke engine. I don't know anything about any of that. But can you? I used way. to have a four-stroke engine Honda, which I rode on well, the highways of Southern like, Manitoba. Uh, I'm not going to put wheels on this. You're not going to get to ride it, but I will take video and show you the trash pump in action. It's about four hundred bucks, wow. and I was so excited when they when we went to stage whatever it is the other day. And the doors to the trash pump store open because I've been looking for a water solution for a while and I couldn't get in. And now I, I'm, I'm in and I bought it and I'm going to go pick it up. Well, I agree with you. They should have a better name than trash pump because it sounds like you're going to be putting trash on your radishes to make them grow. Yeah. Yeah. Or it's garbage, but it's shiny and new and it should be called something better. Oh, okay. I, don't leave it no, out wait. there, right? Before we talk about the other business, like you've got news too. You're going to buy a new <laughs> suit, you told me. And I'm excited about this shopping excursion for you. Like, what what are you looking for in a new suit that you don't have in the 500 suits that I know are in your closet? I'm looking for one that'll fit. <laughs> I've got, uh, you know, a little kind of pandemic weight issue here. And I've... I've discovered that the 
the suits and I, you know, I don't have 500, but I, I have a few left over from the, uh, the old days and they, um, I are a little tight. So I, I've got to, uh, I, I've got to look around for, um, for something new. And now pandemic weight is a problem for a lot of people. I don't know about you, but it certainly was for me. So I've been on for three weeks now, I've been on a no carb diet. And I'm pretty, uh, you know, I'm pretty proud of the results so far. I'm, I, yeah. I'm down about eight or nine pounds, depending on which scale I use. So I, I tend to be at the one that's where I'm down nine pounds. The friendly scale. The yeah. friendly scale. But um, I have yet to see any real significant change. Well, and I just know, found I'd... out yesterday, you'll be interested to know this, that when you start losing weight, everybody assumes, okay, I'm going to lose weight and my mm. waist is going to, tighten up and that's not the way it works (laughs) it eventually gets to your waist but there's kind of a tiering system of of uh, of where it happens first and it happens in the uh you know in the in the upper chest it happens uh in a variety of places including your face before it gets down to your waist wow you're so, saying your uh, butt is smaller? Uh, and it, <laughs> No, not yet. Um, but it, it, apparently it's like 16 weeks before it gets to your belly. That's well, a you long time of not having any pasta. or. I'm on a different program. That just sounds like a miserable way to live, but good for you for doing it. I just decided I'm going to grow my hair bigger so the rest of me looks smaller. And that's I did that already. Right I did that already. It doesn't work. <laughs> All right, let's get to the business yes, at hand. Let's Peter. get to the business at hand. Um, yesterday, uh, the Minister of Procurement, it's actually title is Minister of Public Services and Procurement, uh, was on the podcast. And I, I thought it was a really interesting uh, discussion about where we are in situations. There were a couple of things came up that, um, that I think are worth pursuing a little bit. You know, I was trying to get at how are you going to deal with people who choose, and it's their right, not to have a vaccine. And yet, uh, you know, there are issues about the impact that has on the public health system, uh, both in practice and in, and in cost. Um, eventually, what she ended up saying is, listen, those people are going to have to be prepared to live in a different world of access than the rest of us. Which, you know, can mean, you know, the federal government doesn't have a lot of control over that. They certainly have some uh, control over uh, air travel and how you get on planes and this and that and the other thing. But the private sector seems to have most of that control, whether it's getting into concerts or sporting events or shopping centers or what have you. Um, And I'm wondering, because I know you've been involved in in some of the discussions with different levels of, uh, you know, of these groups, whether it's the public sector or the private sector. And I'm wondering what you're hearing. I mean, are we heading towards that kind of a situation where there will be different classes, really, of, uh, of access, depending on whether or not you've been vaccinated? I think there will be some of that. I don't know how long it will last for Peter. I think that the the point that uh, Minister Anand was making that I think is an important one is that this isn't really going to be a question of governments deciding 
to prohibit people from doing certain things. So obviously, there's been a fair bit of that in the context of how we keep breakouts from happening and the controls on the border and the controls around travel and that sort of thing. So there will be some things where government establishes the guardrails um, in terms of vaccination and what what you can or can't do. Um, but I think a lot more of the pressure that ex- that will exist uh, towards those who choose not to be vaccinated will be pressure exerted by um, parents of uh, of kids who go to the same school as your kids or uh, people in uh, businesses where you want to go and do what you want to do, but others don't want to do it if there's a if there's a risk that there's too many unvaccinated people. So I do think that that kind of peer pressure, the local discussion, the, the, the not so much by fiat of government, but by social persuasion, that's going to be a thing. And uh, it's natural that it will be a thing. I think so many people came through this pandemic and felt like, I'm going to do the things that I need to do to protect myself, and I'm going to keep an eye on other people and what I need to do to protect them. And you expect that in return. I think there's going to be tensions between people who have been vaccinated, fully vaccinated, and those who say, I don't need to because other people went ahead and got the shot. I think there's going to be some tensions about that. There'll probably be some unvaccinated people who will be asking government to protect their rights, to prevent businesses from excluding them from certain activities and that sort of thing. And that'll be a bit of a dilemma for people in politics, to be honest. But I think everybody's hope right now is that so many people get vaccinated in Canada that we have a really small version of this problem. And the numbers look to me like that can be the case. One one last thing, Peter, there was an example that I saw yesterday that you may have seen of a... um, a show that is opening on Broadway mm. uh, with Bruce Springsteen in it. Yep. And the uh, and the fine print on the ticket indicated that you could only get into this show in July, I think it is, if you were vaccinated with one of the FDA-approved vaccines, which means not AstraZeneca. Yep. Uh, now, I think they're going to change that because it means that they can't have anybody from the UK and a lot of people from Canada. And I think Broadway does kind of understand that they get tourists into these shows, but it's a good example of the kind of thing to come. Yeah, there there are a number of things at play um, that are really interesting to watch. Uh, if that's going to be the example that some Canadian um, companies and businesses follow, I mean, also on Broadway, uh, Hamilton. You've seen it. I've seen it. Spectacular! Like it's just a great, great show. Um, the uh, the fellow who wrote it and started it, Lin Manuel, uh, what's it, Lin Miranda? I'm sorry, Lin Manuel Miranda. Miranda, yeah, Lin Manuel uh, Miranda. Um, I think he said that no, no performers will be allowed in Hamilton unless they're vaccinated. Now that's not universal on Broadway, at least not yet. Um, and there's there are rumblings in the Canadian theater area on the part of actors, some actors uh, in particular who are saying, "Hey, you know, I want to know that everybody on that stage is vaccinated." And theater companies are kind of resisting that because of 
the things you suggest about the the kind of battles they may end up getting into. Um, but I guess one of the the areas is trying to determine, and you suggested it, uh, is just like how many people are we talking about here who are going to have chosen for one reason or another not to be vaccinated. Now, the numbers, one of the numbers that, uh, that uh, the minister dropped yesterday was that by the end of July, 80% um, of Canadians uh, who are of age or who are allowed to be vaccinated will be vaccinated. Now, that's a pretty big number, and, and a lot of people who were responding to that interview I mean, there was, you know, there there were those who never listened to a thing that was said and respond to it, and then there were those who actually listened to it and responded to it, and some of those uh, who were the ones I take seriously were wondering about that eighty percent number and how how real is that? Well, as you said and as she said, things are really moving fast here. Um, in terms of the uh, population that is allowed to have a vaccine right now. 12 and over, 12 years of age and over, 75% have received at least one dose already, right, like now. Um, but as we noted yesterday, that second dose number is much lower. So it's around 14% are fully vaccinated. In other words, have had both doses. So she's saying in the next, what's end of July, six weeks away, seven maybe, yeah. um, that... Uh, that it's going to, that the overall number on fully vaccinated, twelve years and older, is going to be eighty percent. That's a lot. The vaccines. I mean, they're coming into the country at a huge rate, millions. She's brought in millions, or in her team, uh, and they're going to keep coming in during that period. But do you buy that eighty percent figure? You're the you're the guy with numbers. You like to crunch the numbers. Is that possible? Yeah, there's two parts to this equation, uh, obviously. One is how many doses will be available. And she has definitely, with her team and uh, on the, with the mandate of the prime minister, has procured more than enough vaccines for that to happen. Um, and I think that there were skeptics about whether or not companies were going to live up to their contracts and, and deliver those vaccines in a timely fashion. And, and basically, with that one or two pardon me, very small exceptions. What's happened has been that companies have outperformed uh, the contracted timetables, delivered more doses to Canada for one reason or another. But I think one of the reasons uh, clearly is, and I heard um, that minister talk on this Faster Together uh, meeting that I had the other day. And one of the things that she's done is basically I gather that she gets on the phone uh, regularly with these suppliers and says, I know we've got a contract and I know it says this, and I want to just make sure that we're on track. And if we're not on track, let's talk about how to get on track. So I, I think that constant pressure has helped make sure that the number of doses available will not be a barrier to hitting those numbers. The second part of the equation is, will people take those doses? And uh, a couple of things to note about that. One is that if we had only bought AstraZeneca, we'd be in trouble. Uh, because there are enough people who have hesitation about AstraZeneca. It's about half of the population who say, I don't know, I don't know if I really want that. Whereas with Pfizer, more than 80% say that they have confidence in it. And it, a, a similar number for Moderna. 
And we're getting a lot of doses of both of those vaccines right now. So I think there'll be enough doses. I think that the first barrier is, do I trust the vaccine and enough people trust what we're going to get? So where are we at right now? Our numbers show that among adults, not she was using 80% of all Canadians, I think, and that includes children. And so that's a separate thing. Our data only looks at adults, but I think it's a reasonable bet that if a parent gets the vaccination, they're probably going to want to get their child vaccinated, provided that the, the authorities say it's safe. We're at uh, about 20, if we think about 30 million Canadian adults, 22 million have had a vaccination already. 2.7 million are telling us, I'm ready when you are. Tell me when I can book that appointment. These are mostly young people, right? And so that gets us to 24.7 of the 30. And then, then after that, the going gets a little tougher. Okay, so that's 81% of adults. The next 13% are a combination of, I prefer to wait a little bit. Now, maybe by the time the next two weeks is over, They'll say, okay, I've waited a little bit. I've seen a little bit more. I feel good about it. I'm going to slide into the getting vaccinated column. And then there's another 1 million or so who say, I could be persuaded, but I really would rather not. Those are going to be hard. Now, I kind of feel like we can get to 90%, uh, 90% of adults accepting the vaccines. And we know from our research that things like lotteries, actually make a difference. Um, it's a bit ironic that that people who, at least in my mind anyway, I don't mean to be critical of people, but uh, I think of people who don't want to take a vaccine as maybe people who, in, other than for health reasons, don't understand odds because the odds of getting sick uh, are from COVID are much worse um, than the odds of getting sick from the vaccine. Having said that, about 45% of the hesitants say, oh, well, if you give me a lottery ticket, a chance to win a million dollars, those odds sound good enough for me to take the vaccine. <laughs> that doesn't quite make sense to me, but if it works, I'm okay with it. Um, some of these incentives, are, some of these incentives are, are, are really interesting because it's not just lotteries, right? There's no. scholarships. I mean, it it it, uh, it seems to be the Western provinces, at least Manitoba, I think Saskatchewan, Alberta, are doing lotteries, scholarships, other kinds of prizes. And listen, if if that's getting people to the needle, yeah. We tested like 30 things, everything from free camping at a provincial or a national park to uh, a free Starbucks coffee to 50% your, off your next via trip. And one of the things that's really interesting about it is like, it doesn't matter if it's a hot dog and a beer at a ball game or, uh, uh, you know, a half price ticket to a hockey game. The value doesn't really matter. It's kind of the exchange of something. And, uh, so when we test a $20 voucher for that you can spend at Costco or Walmart or Canadian Tire or a $10 voucher, it almost doesn't matter whether it's 10 or 20. It's just something. Uh, and so there's a certain portion of those hesitant who will take it. I, I remain optimistic on the first shot that we'll get 90% plus, uh, maybe closer to 95 on the second shot, that's where a lot of the effort needs to go. So I'm hoping that people who use incentives, companies that put incentives into the marketplace, uh, focus on fully vaccinated as being the end state, because we don't have a big problem right now in terms of getting to 
uh, the kind of numbers that we need getting that first shot. But we need to remind people about the dangers of the variant. The more protection that you get against the variant, the better. And if, we, if we're going to use incentives, we should probably use them uh, to create that second dose compliance too. Okay, I've got a couple of questions on some of the things you just said, but we're going to take this quick break and then I'll ask them. Okay, two things in what you said a moment ago, and one of them um, is this gap between first and second dose uh, pickup on the part of, uh, of those who get them. I, I'm, a, I guess, a little surprised that there's a hesitancy if you've had one dose about getting the second dose, but you see it, it it's really there? No, um, we don't see it here in Canada right now, but we do see it in the U.S. a little bit. And it's not a hesitancy born of um, I'm scared of it or I'm scared of the side effects as much as it, do I really need to? Do I need to bother with that? Right. Maybe the protection is good enough. Maybe enough people have the protection. Everything's opening up. I've got other things on my agenda. It's the it's almost the kind of the deferral of the decision to get it that we need to be a little bit concerned about. But right now, as of this morning, 99% of the people who've got a first shot say they're going to get that second shot. Um, it's just the, the view of a lot of observers and experts in this field who say that this is a funny thing that can happen between the first shot and the second shot is that people just get a little bit complacent and they decide that getting another vaccination isn't really that necessary. So if you're going to use incentives, use them for the larger challenge of getting everybody past that second finish line so that next fall and winter um, is really a safe time for uh, people to do what they want to do and businesses to operate well. All right. I'm supposed to re-identify ourselves because I, I always forget this, but uh, this is The Bridge. It's the Wednesday edition, which is Smoke, Mirrors, and the Truth. Bruce Anderson joins us from Ottawa. I'm in Toronto today. Uh, and at the moment, uh, we are talking kind of fallout from yesterday's uh, interview with Anita Anon. Um, the Minister of Procurement and the whole discussion about uh, vaccines and how um, how the situation is unfolding in Canada. The other thing that you mentioned that I, you know, it's an extension of what she said. She says 80% fully vaccinated by end of July. Uh, you're saying the possibility exists that we could end up getting up to around 90. Now, I'm... Um, you know, that, both those numbers are, are, are in the herd immunity zone. So they, you know, those are good. Uh, but I'm actually surprised that we're hearing numbers that high. And, not, and this isn't sort of a, a negative about Canada, but you don't see those kind of numbers in other countries, at least other countries uh, that have a free vote. Um, and I, I wonder why. What, what are you assuming is um, making Canada distinctive if it is if it does turn out to be distinctive in terms of the high turnout rate uh, for getting vaccines yeah I, I think that's a great question it's one of the more interesting things to watch through this pandemic is how people in different societies with different cultural kind of tendencies have reacted to the pandemic and to the guidance about what to do including masks including social distancing, including lockdowns, all of that kind of thing. And, and I think that the way to think about what's different about us from vaccines is partly understood by 
recognizing what was different about us uh, with respect to masks and lockdowns and social distancing. I mean, we are, after all, a country that prides itself on our um, tendency to say, I'm sorry, uh, <laughs> wherever we are, whenever we run into somebody else or um, appear to be willing to speak over somebody else or anything else. We are the I'm sorry people. And, um, and it's a, and it's a mark of our sense of, of courtesy and also that we don't really kind of like friction and chaos that much. We are a country that wrote the words somewhere along the way, peace, order, and good government. And they represented a really important way to understand what is in our DNA as a country that makes us decide that if our health authorities, whom we generally trust, we don't go, oh, well, Dr. Tam, you know, she must be like uh, Anthony Fauci and half of America thinks you can't trust Anthony Fauci because Donald Trump said you can't trust Anthony Fauci. We don't have any version of that of any magnitude. We uh, There's some lurking in the corners of the internet, no doubt about it, but we don't really validate the your keys will stick to your head kind of rhetoric that we see in the United States about vaccines. It's out there a little bit, but it isn't supported by one of the two main political parties or one of the main political parties. And there isn't really a way to have that conversation in polite company without people kind of stepping back from you and kind of wondering what they got to do next because, Oh, the time is passing. We've got to move on. So I think part of it is we trust our health authorities. Um, We followed the guidance because we, um, believe in taking steps to protect our health, but also care about the other people that we could infect, that we could endanger, and what we should do about that. And we tend to be more skeptical about these kind of uh, bizarre conspiracy theories. Uh, and maybe it's because we see how odd it looks south of the border sometimes. And I know that every once in a while we get a writer, Peter, that says, we don't understand America. And I sort of feel like, Maybe we do. Um, we certainly consume an awful lot of information about it, and we see some of its idiosyncrasies. That's the nicest word that I can use to describe this phenomena. We see them in relief relative to our own society. So I think we're going to mostly do the right thing, and mostly also if if employers and businesses say, look, we really need um, – people to recognize that if you're going to come into this place of business, it needs to feel safe for our workers. It needs to feel safe for other customers. And this is a condition that matters to us. I think a lot of people are going to go along with that. Even some of those who, who maybe would rather not get the vaccination. I, I'll just say two things. Um, you never said you were sorry that the Leafs lost. So, so much for that. I'm sorry. I'm not, not sorry about that. And the other thing is, I was very disappointed to hear that the that whole keys stick to your forehead thing isn't true because I'm always losing my keys. <laughs> it would be easier if they made a vaccine with a little bit of that. Yeah, I yeah. get it. I get yeah. it. Yeah, we could have used that. Um, all right. Enough about vaccines. Let's uh, pivot for a moment or two anyway um, to the election cycle. Um you're still thinking, I'm still thinking that this is likely a, a late summer election call. Uh, how the prime minister is going to set the stage for that without somebody, you know, pulling the plug on his minority government, other than him personally pulling the plug. 
I'm not quite sure how that's going to work, but nevertheless, uh, that is the current thinking. A call in, in somewhere in mid to late August for an election in mid to late December or September, um, and we'll see how that works out. But there was there's kind of a I don't know whether you call it a wrench in the plans or in the wrench in the thinking about how an election might unfold. Uh, watching the Green Party, which is you know. We're not talking about a lot of votes here, but they are votes that can make a difference. Uh, they only had three MPs elected in the last election. One has left and has joined the Liberals just in the last uh, week or so. Um, but now there's a, a, a clear movement afoot to dump the leader. So how does this all work into the election thinking? Yeah, I, I think it's a very interesting thing to watch, uh, in part because I think that the election may well turn on the votes of BC voters, of voters under 30, of voters on the progressive side of the spectrum. And that is where um, the Green Party tends to find its highest levels of support. Right now, we see the Green Party at 12% federally in BC. Um, we see it at 14% among 18 to 29 year olds. Um, so when I think about those numbers, I think what they do when those numbers are elevated like that for the liberals, it puts them in some jeopardy uh, because then the NDP becomes a more competitive force. And, and that, you know, that three-way race in BC and that two-way race meaning between the NDP and the Liberals among under 30 voters is absolutely a crucial battleground scenario for this. Um, but I, I think that what's going on with the Green Party, I don't really know the, the kind of inside of the Green Party very well, and, and none of us have really had an opportunity to kind of understand that, how it's developed and what it's... Um, you know, what its kind of uh, congealing factors are as a party. It hasn't been around that long. It's only really been led by that one person, Elizabeth May, uh, for the longest period of time. And it was a largely a kind of a Elizabeth May-centric um, political movement, it seemed, on the national stage. But when we kind of dig under the surface a little bit and look at the attitudes of Green Party voters, um, it's kind of a mix. You know, there's a lot of young people who say climate change is a really important uh, issue for them, and the Green Party is the most uh, ferocious advocate for uh, emissions reduction and biodiversity protection and that sort of thing. So if you really deeply care about that, the Green Party feels like um, the most aggressive champion of that issue. But there are also other uh, elements within the Green Party that are a little bit more right of center, actually, um, on, on economic issues. Um, if we're looking at the at the pockets of vaccine resistance. Sometimes we find them highest among the People's Party and among uh, some parts of the Green Party membership, which you wouldn't expect necessarily if you think of the Green Party as essentially a kind of a, a modern, highly educated, progressive party. Um, it doesn't only look like that. And I think this is one of the problems that when you had a leader um, with the stature and the longevity of Elizabeth May, and this is not to criticize Annamie Paul, she's new to the job, but there have been other pressures that have built up in that party under Elizabeth May too. I think it sort of felt like she was kind of pushed out 
of that role rather than decided that it was time for her to go. So I don't know that it's a congealed party. I don't know that it has one kind of perspective and one set of priorities across the country. I think some of that's playing out and probably both the NDP and the Liberals are are watching it with great interest. The Liberals a little bit from a fearful standpoint of uh, what happens if the NDP, if the Green Party does right itself and maybe a more hopeful, what happens if they don't look like a viable cohesive party in the election and we can make a call uh, on their voters to support us based on our climate action plan and our other environmental policies. I should use this opportunity to, to let people know uh, who've been, uh, some of whom have been asking about Good Talk, the program that Bruce um, and I and Chantelle Hébert um, do, and we're doing uh, through most of the spring, every Thursday. Um, we're going to be, that show is on hi- hiatus right now as we uh, warm up to get ready for an election campaign. So it too will be back. If the election's called in mid-August, Good Talk will be back at least once a week for our full hour discussion. And obviously, it'll be election focused. And um, Chantel, you know, like Bruce, has a good handle on this situation, especially with the NDP. But how the how the Green Party, if they are in serious trouble, and who knows where this is going to lead? But there is an, an attempt to try and uh, move the leader out, um, Anami Paul. But um, It'll be interesting to hear Chantel's voice on this as well, because we all remember back in the election that uh, Jack Layton made his um, breakthrough, the orange wave, and they ended up in opposition. Um, was that what was was that twenty eleven? Was that twenty eleven campaign? I think it was. Um, yeah. The um, it was Chantel who was the first one who was kind of on top of that story about how NDP votes, especially in Quebec, were starting to build, and it could have an impact. And I see, I noticed that just this week she wrote a column talking about uh, the NDP and its potential uh, to make headway in this campaign as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that coupled, as you say, with uh, something going on in the Green Party where there are a lot of uh, former NDP supporters uh, built up in there where they might end up. But as you say... Um, they are not the only supporters inside the Green Party. So it's all... The one other thing, Peter, yeah. to watch, I think, in this, it's not so much related to the Green Party, but uh, that I'm paying a little bit of attention to is that we know that the Conservative Party is is kind of facing pressures from both uh, the left and the right, or the center and the right, that the presence of the People's Party as an option... And the Maverick Party in Western Canada or parts of Western Canada, both of those can bleed away some support from the Conservatives. And it doesn't always look like support that can make them lose seats, although it probably could make some seats more competitive. But the risk for um, Aaron O'Toole a little bit is that it creates, it supports a narrative that he's not making progress that he's actually kind of in a weaker position than Andrew Scheer was. And that every time there's a poll that has a number for the conservatives, the first digit of which is a, is a two, not a three, that kind of reinforces uh, the pressures within his party uh, among people who say, 
he's not working out. He's not making the progress that we expected. Uh, here we are in a pandemic uh, that went on a long time with a deficit that's massive and an economy that's still kind of weak. And uh, why are we still polling in the 20s rather than in the in the mid 30s and maybe even ahead uh, of the incumbents? And so I'm watching the Maverick and the People's Party numbers pretty carefully because they have an effect because they only take from the Conservatives. That's who those voters are if they're if those other parties aren't available on the ballot. I should mention that um, uh, we've been trying to get Aaron O'Toole on the uh, on the bridge, and the request is in with his office, and hopefully uh, he will be willing to come on, give us. Uh, you know the uh, the opportunity to chat the same way we talked to the minister yesterday, the same way we talked to the prime minister a couple of months ago. Uh, so we'll look forward to uh, an answer from the uh, conservative leader's office, hopefully in the uh, in the next short time. Um, all right, I think that's going to wrap her up for today, Bruce. We covered a lot of ground, and clearly, the most important ground is that that new trash pump that you've got, and. I know on behalf of all listeners, we we wish you luck out there. We I know wish you. you luck shopping for that suit too, Peter. I'm <laughs> going to take a picture of the trash pump and I'd like to see that suit. Are you going to go gray or black or blue? Uh, it's, it's probably a mixture of those colors. Yeah. You know, I'm looking for the new kind of the look, whatever the new look is. Statement. today. You know, I, I, I get a kick out, you know, I, I took a look at some stuff yesterday and, you know, for all the fuss, men's clothing is no different than women's clothing. You know, like women's clothing, every couple of years, skirts go up, then they go down, then they go up again. And all this, so, you know, they, they're hoping that the, the, the fashionistas and those with money will buy new every couple of years, right? It's the same with men. You know, you had the three-button suit, the two-button suit, the wide lapels, the narrow, narrower pleats. lapels. Don't forget the pleats. Pleats, cuffs. Yeah. I used to love yeah. cuffs. I used to love cuffs on pants. How could you get that into cuffs? Like, you know, what? love them? No, I, used so to, I just thought they looked word. so classy. I remember when I was a little kid looking at my dad's pants and there were cuffs on them, and I thought, that's so, I can't wait oh, yeah. to grow up well, and have great. cuffs. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I only abandoned I cuffs it. a few years ago. Um, my tailor used to, you know, you, you buy off the rack, but then they have to adjust things. And I always had them put cuffs on the, on, on, on the pants. And my tailor guy used to say, hey, you know, really? Nobody wears cuffs anymore? And I said, as soon as I stop wearing cuffs, cuffs will come back in. You watch. I love, I just need to stop you there. I love how... <laughs> You you use that term, my tailor, and then you know something in your mind said, "Oh, that's going to make that me sounds sound elitist. like a Richie Rich Millions guy." So now I call him Taylor Guy, or you know, you buy off the rack, but then you also get. I the do buy off the bit. rack. <laughs> I've only once in, I've only once in my life. I won't name the place in downtown Toronto, but they called me and said, "You have to come here because Peter Jennings buys all his suits here." <laughs> And I said, well, I can't afford, you know, made-to-measure suits. Oh, well, you know, we'll give you a deal, blah, blah, blah. So, I, you know, I finally went there, and I had one suit made, and I never liked it. It just was not right for me. Um, and I, I did have one other made-to-measure suit, and it, uh, it's a story in my next book. 
Well, you know, maybe with this suit, this will be my last comment on it. You know, this low carb, (laughs) small butt Peter suit, maybe it's time to go back to that tailor made, like from scratch artisanal (laughs) suit because you're coming out of the pandemic, a different man. I'm definitely coming out of the pandemic, a different man, a different man who weighs more than the man who went into the pandemic. (laughs) I'm working at it though. I I, think I, I really weak. am. I, I hurt my foot the other day. So I well the other day about a month ago, six weeks ago, and I haven't been able to do the kind of things that you you want to do on the bike or on the treadmill or that kind of stuff because of my foot, and that's not good because you you got to find something to get your heart going right mm, as well. Yeah. So I'm uh, I'm I'm working at that. So here I am giving a full physical. Here and I, it sounds pretty brutal. The condition <laughs> that I'm in. No, you're you're looking good. I wish people could see you you're looking uh, very sporty this morning and uh, well shaved and not like me. And my hair is well like shaved, horrible, I, and you don't have. I haven't any. shaved since the day I stepped down from the national. It's four years now. <laughs> I should say I have a close cropped beard. I think people have probably heard enough. Your barber guy. All right. That's enough for today. (laughs) (laughs) All right, young fellow. Good luck out there with the pump. And we'll look look for the update next week. Talk soon. All righty. That's it for today. That's it for Smoke, Mirrors, and the Truth. Tomorrow we'll be back with Popery Thursday. Friday, of course, is uh, an opportunity to hear from you, your letters and thoughts and comments and questions or what have you on the mailbag edition of the weekend special for the bridge. I'm Peter Mansbridge. This has been the bridge. Thank you so much for listening and we'll talk to you again in 24 hours.